Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you're about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Yield. Make sure to subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and leave a review if you're enjoying the content. In case we haven't met before, I'm your host, Peter Kerr. I'm the Senior Director of Product Marketing here at Yieldtreat. Today, I'm joined once again by Richard Excel, who is a Clinical Assistant Professor of Finance at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, the Geese School of Business. So, Richard, welcome to the show again. Peter, thanks for having me again. Glad yeah, to be here. It's been great having you on. You know, we've been doing these, uh, you know, sort of these touch points once a month or so, and it's certainly always incredibly insightful for us. Um, and maybe, you know, when we look back on the last time you joined, which was about late August or so, um, we can first talk through what really has changed from your perspective in the last 30 days or so. Yeah, I think when we when we got together last end of last month, um, you know, we were looking forward to basically getting back after the, the Labor Day holidays, having a lot more market participants come back because we had been in those summer markets and it's always difficult to understand how much is signal and how much is noise when you're in the summer months. And then we're looking forward, forward to like a lot of companies kind of presenting at conferences, a lot of economic data in the in the anticipation of, of the next Fed meeting and what that might mean. And so we, we've kind of gone through that the last three weeks here post uh, post Labor Day. And to say that I mean, incrementally, most of the information we've gotten has been negative or bearish towards towards risk taking. Right. Um, the, the economic data that has come out has showed some continued weakness uh, along the trend, as we would have expected. But it's also shown persistently high inflation. We've seen even uh, things such as the uh, the, the, the labor negotiation with the, with the railroads um, that kind of resolved in, in, in a healthy uh, increase as someone expected, suggests that maybe even more inflation down the road. Um, you've got, you know, generally speaking, while we're, we haven't really kicked off into earnings yet, you know, the commentary we've seen coming out of either pre-announcements or conferences has been a bit downbeat um, on, on both the, the, the growth and the margin front. So I think we've gotten a lot of things that would suggest that, that investors should probably continue to be downbeat and we've seen that in the price action. Uh, even when we've had some, what should have been some positive catalysts, they really have kind of resulted in, 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 in nothing really. So yeah, I think it's it's tough to, to be upbeat because really the biggest thing to, that we can, you know, the bulls might want to point to is the bearish position, which we've been talking about for several months and has been there. Yeah, you know, we, we sit here today, it's another um, Fed meeting day. So uh, we do expect to have an announcement on the expected um, additional increase in the Fed funds rate. I think the market's primarily pricing in a, a, the expectation for a 75 point, a basis point uh, hike, but certainly an outside chance at maybe something as large as 100 or so. It seems as though the um, you know conversation still re- resides around this lack of improvement on inflation in terms of the Fed's ability uh, to combat it and at least get it to moderate and slow down. That was one of the big catalysts in the recent August sell-off was while there were some green shoots, 
um, core inflation actually increased month over month at a much more accelerated pace, which certainly was one of the catalysts that started to drive uh, especially equity markets lower and, of course, um, put rates uh, in terms of treasury yields much higher. So my question to you is really just Joe Weisenthal from Bloomberg had a couple of charts out the other day that showed that a lot of private market indicators are showing prices coming down, but a lot of the government uh, you know, use statistics, including CPI and PCE, still remain very high. So are we seeing any improvement or does it still feel as though inflation is running a little bit out of control and we're not even starting to see the foundation for a potential change or reduction in that, that overall um, inflation? Well, that's a, that's a great question, and I think you can you can certainly point to that. I mean, I think there's always debate about how accurate the CPI is in terms of a reflection of the basket of goods for people. But I think if we look at the components of the CPI that came out um, most recently, where is a slightly higher than expected number on a year-over-year basis, and, and and a little bit of a disappointment at the core, it was really across the board that we saw you know this this strength, if you will, and and, and even some of it was just that. Um, some prices hadn't come down as quickly as expected, right? There's been this expectation all year long that goods prices were going to certainly come down because um, a lot of consumers had loaded up on goods during the COVID phase when everyone was just ordering online and having it delivered, and they didn't need, there wasn't going to be as much demand for goods. And we have seen goods inflation coming down, albeit maybe a little bit slower um, than we expected. But the services ex- uh, inflation hasn't, hasn't, it was expected to go up, it's probably gone up a little bit faster than expected. And where we saw that the the most in the, in the recent uh, CPI data was in medical services, um, in, the, in the cost of medical goods uh, and me- medical care, I should say. And I think even anecdotally, if you were to look at this on a private market basis, I, I don't I haven't seen Joe's Joe's charts, um, but you know that doesn't seem to have been coming down much. For you know, I think that can, seems to continue to trend higher, et cetera. And with the peak of the baby boomers uh, retiring next year, and kind of you know at that kind of phase of their life where medical care becomes a bigger issue it's hard to see how that's going to change anytime soon um in spite of the fact that you have companies such as amazon etc coming in and trying to fix healthcare for the third time etc i mean you know that's that's the private market side of it it's not the the public market side of it and the, and the public market side of it which is about 40 percent is growing and so um that, that's the you know that's the the kind of maybe the fiscal impulse of of that that is going to maybe continue to drive that. So I think when you look at a lot of other things that have been driving CPI this year, if you if you look at um, you know financial conditions, if you look at money supply, if you look at commodity prices, things of that nature, um, the, the forecast is that CPI sh- or should be that CPI will come lower, but probably at a slower pace than the Fed and others would want, and probably um, not to the same sort of 2% terminal level that they'd like to get it to. And so I think it's it's not so much the direction on a forward-looking basis as the pace. Um, and, and because the pace might be slower and more persistent, I think that that will keep the Fed involved, which will you know will certainly uh, cause a dampening of, of risk appetite um, across the spectrum of risky assets. And so I think it, that's really what what's the biggest issue right now. Inflation is the biggest game in town, and fr- frankly, it's the only game in town because um, inflation is, is driving yields, um, it's it's hurting multiples, and that's really what's driving riskier assets. And it's and it's hurting um, the duration trade across the market, whether that be in anything from long bonds um, to crypto to private markets. And I guess I'm kind of curious from where we sit today, let's say the Fed, you know, uh, does indeed raise rates 
you know, by 75 basis points today. And I think the market's predicting some in the range of another 50 or so for the remaining two meetings so far this year. Do you see it being more likely that inflation just slowly creeps lower over the course of the next six to eight months? Or do you think the speed in which it increases is also the speed at which it will decrease? I, I think it'll be stickier on the downside for sure. I think some of that is is the fact that you know, you're seeing sort of some of this kind of creep into into wages as we as we talked about, um, and so I think that kind of leads to a little bit of stickiness. But I just think that that's naturally how we see in inflation generally play out, uh, you know, over you know through time and through cycles is that it it, it, co- it goes up faster and comes down uh, more slowly, and so uh, that's that would be my expectation. Now, you know, I, I think when we talk about the Fed, um, you know, the the Fed can affect. Ultimately, what it's what it's trying to affect is, is the demand side, right? Um, but most of these prices are a function of supply and demand, and so I think we want to look at, you know, they they understand that they can't affect supply curves, and in a lot of the commodities, a lot of the food, etc., um, we're not seeing supply response that you might expect at this point. Perhaps it's because of dislocations in the, in some markets, as we've seen. Um, perhaps it's because of these supply chain uh, rationales that you know a lot of companies refer to. But you're not seeing the supply response to high. Prices. And so the Fed's only option is to bring down prices by affecting demand. And that's that's typically a more difficult way to kind of get prices lower than, than, the, than, the, than the greed that comes from the supply response. And so, you know, I think at this point, we're, you know, the, the Fed, if I had to interpret the Fed, and I'm not um, necessarily a, a Fed watcher per se, but it seems that the response post the July meeting and at Jackson Hole, um, the Fed seems to be thinking that maybe their credibility is being questioned at this point. And so I would think that, you know, a, a more aggressive Fed, um, you know, what, you know, some have suggested 100 basis points. I would think at the very least that the base case should be 75 at, at both September and November. So 150 basis points by November. That, that you know, yeah, however they get there, I think that that is the Fed right now is really trying to talk and, and really try to use more forward guidance and be more aggressive because – I think I mentioned before that to me, inflation and deflation at the other end of the spectrum are a mindset as much of a number, and it and it starts to affect consumer behavior. And so I think the Fed really wants to um, be seen to be aggressive, so that 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 inflation mindset doesn't kind of creep in and get sticky. Yeah, and, and I guess you know you you mentioned a lot around the Fed's Fed's credibility, which is uh, quite important. But where you sit today with what you know, what do you think the peak? How, how much further do you think the Fed needs to go? You know, you mentioned another 150 of the next two meetings. There's a third meeting in December. Let's say that's at, you know, at least 50 basis points or so. From where you sit today, that's another 200 basis points, um, which, you know, brings the, the, the Fed funds rate up to some of its highest levels since the global financial crisis uh, and beyond. Does it end there? Or do you think, you know, first half of next year, from where you sit today, we're still talking about the Fed with these really large hikes at each subsequent meeting? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, I mean, that would be my base case, right? I think that somewhere between four and four and a half is probably your terminal Fed funds rate, at least um, where they might pause to reflect and see what the impact is. Because, of course, monetary policy acts with a lag. And so we've seen a, a meaningful impact over the course of this year. And typical monetary policy lag is something along the lines of 12 months. And so I would think they'd want to perhaps pause and see what the impact is in the first half of next year um, before um, kind of continuing on. That somewhat coincides with the fact that if I look at economic growth cycles as measured, for instance, by the ISM, tend to be about 15 to 24 months long. And we had the peak in the ISM back in March of 
of 21. So that would put the, the potential trough for ISM somewhere in, in Q4 or Q1. So that might kind of coincide as well. Um, so I think that that would be probably what I would think. I mean, you've even seen some of the Fed speakers say that we need to get to a level and pause and and, and see what happens. And I think they were kind of saying that more along the lines of don't expect us to reverse course right away. We're going to pause and reflect. But I, I think that is probably consistent. I think one thing to understand is is a lot of people seem to ask and wonder, you know, isn't isn't the Fed responsive to asset prices? You know, where's the Fed put, et cetera? Um, and to me, the Fed has always is always responsive to earnings and not multiples. And so the fact that the sell-off in the markets this year has been multiples led, and multiples are really just a measure of investor sentiment, um, the Fed is not as going to, going to be as worried about an investor sentiment led move lower because that can reverse course very quickly. If we start to see earnings materially impacted, and we haven't seen that yet, right? There's the expectation that in Q3, earnings will come down considerably, but we have yet to see that this year. I think that would be more on the Fed's radar if we saw earnings meaningfully impacted in Q3 and perhaps even in Q1, that that might get the, the stat might be where, you know, the catalyst to kind of get the Fed to pause a little bit. But again, I think there's there's a lot of uncertainty, not just for us, but for the Fed as well. And, and a lot of it revolves around this this idea that, you know, ultimately it's it's food and energy prices that are the, the initial catalyst. And while uh, when we look at that data on a month-to-month basis, people want to take, take it out and look at the core because um, it's too volatile, et cetera. But you know, consumers are, are largely spending a bulk of their money on food and, and food and energy. You know, and so that is something that I think where we see you know, even today when you 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 know you look at the uh, the commodities market and you see some of the news out of Russia and Ukraine and you're like, you know, food and energy prices are back higher and and we don't see that supply response from energy companies, and so you know, that potentially points to stickier prices on food and energy front. And, and what, you know, that will probably keep the Fed in play because they have to affect demand. Yeah. And I, I feel like we could talk uh, quite a bit around inflation and obviously as it relates to Fed, to the Fed and economic policy, but maybe kind of uh, pivoting a little bit here. One of the things that, um, you know, is a byproduct of some of the um, inflation pressures and also what the, the Fed has been doing on the front end has also been Mortgage rates and also um, certainly the cost uh, of a mortgage relative to you know the interest to principal ratio has really blown out. Where interest is becoming by far the largest component. How do you see this playing out? You know, certainly housing has been an area that feels a little bit isolated overall in real estate um, from some of the the dislocation we've seen across different markets. When do you think that buckles, if at all? Well, I think it already is buckling in some places, especially the places that probably saw the biggest move higher, right? The the the, uh, the, the most sought after markets in in Florida and Texas and Arizona, et cetera, where people were moving to as they moved out of states like New York, Connecticut, Illinois, California, um, and so we are seeing probably some some things coming off the boil there. But I think you're absolutely right that that housing is is critical to how we want to think about the economy and how we want to think about markets because housing has always led the economy into and out of recessions it is the first mover it is it has the highest multiplier right so when we think about housing it's not just the house itself it's everything that goes into it it's you know it's all it's the it's all the furnishings it's all of the the landscaping etc and you think of the multiplier of the people that are working and constructing these houses and selling these things and how that filters into the local communities etc there's a huge multiplier 
multiplier effect on housing. There's a huge employment effect on housing. And so that's why it is critical. Um, we have seen mortgage uh, mortgage rates more than double this year. Um, we've absolutely seen the, the, the price that people would have to pay for uh, a similar mortgage more than doubling and, and eating into a lot more of that uh, median income. How you know? But I think the other thing I would point to, though, and why I think you know, it, you, you probably haven't seen things collapse as much as some are suggesting, are two probably two drivers: one near term, one longer term. The near term drivers of the job market is still pretty healthy. Now, the job market is a lagging indicator; it's usually the last thing to go. Um, usually, it's you know kind of flows through in terms of housing, and then new orders are affected. And we've seen new orders coming low, coming lower. Um, profits would be that third leg. Uh, we haven't seen them fall off as much, though we have seen some anecdotal evidence of companies bringing down guidance. And then employment would be the last last shoe to drop. But if, if you just take a, a fairly simple uh, geometric index of the mortgage rate and the unemployment rate, which would kind of tend to move in opposite directions, and use that as a measure of, of whether or not people can afford a house. Because after all, the mortgage rate matters. But we, you know, what also matters is, do you have a job that's that's a good paying job that you know allows you to pay, pay your mortgage as well? For instance, after the financial crisis, um, mortgage rates came down considerably. Yet no one wanted to buy a house because they didn't have jobs. And so I think if we look at that, then when there's a sign of stress in that measure, it tends to peak out around seven percent, as we saw around COVID. We saw that before, you know around the financial crisis, et cetera. At this point, it's it's below its uh, you know the the twenty year median, and and so it's a very average level, and that's because the unemployment rate or the jobs market has held up, and so people do have jobs, whether or not they want to um, use those jobs to buy a house or whether they, whether they want to stay in an apartment, whether it's a work from home world or not. Um, th- those those are things that we'll have to work through. But I think from that standpoint, that kind of gives you some reason for a little bit of hope, if you will. But of course, I think we want to see some sort of measure of bottoming. Now, coming into this week, uh, there's a lot of housing data and, and it wasn't quite as bad as expected. So maybe there's some measure of that, but it's probably a little bit too early. The other thing I wanted to point to though, that is a little bit of a long-term positive driver for housing is that the, the secular drivers, which is household formation. And we think of like the biggest cohort even bigger than baby boomers is the millennials. And even if you tack on a little bit of Gen Z on there too. And the household formations are are steadily growing. And, and demographically, we can look at look out over the next um, 10 years and see that it will be moving higher. In fact, I uh, think St. Louis Fed put out a study that, that pointed to the, uh, the the 30 to 34 year old age cohort has, has the lowest household ownership of any 30 to 34 year old co- cohort in history. Um, and so it's, and it's going in right into its peak house buying years right now or household formation years. And so I think this is kind of a secular positive, you know, underlying this kind of cyclical move lower that we've talked about. And, and if you look at the the supply, the long run supply of, of houses, it just has not kept up at the same pace. And a lot of that has to do with the struggles around post the the, the financial crisis when there just were it's the, the availability to get to get a loan to 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 build houses for builders, et cetera, just isn't there. Banks are not in that business anymore. And so um, you're just not seeing as much supply in the market. And so I think while we see some of these short-term cyclical impacts and we'd like to see things bottom and we're not seeing it yet, there are maybe a little bit of long-term drivers that that suggest that the, you know, the combination of, of if jobs hold up, if you know these po- positive household formations and this low supply of housing, um, as we look further out down the road, is a sign of hope. But in, in the near term, I think people need to be cautious and, and look for um, where we see this data start to, to potentially bottom. 
and kind of to that point, right? You know, you've certainly painted a, a a picture in which you know the Fed likely is unable to slow its pace materially over the course of the coming quarters. There's also an understanding that there's a lagged effect to some of their policies, and so when it actually starts showing through in the data, we won't know. And while that could be positive on the CPI front, seeing a, a, a little bit of a slowdown there, it could also be quite negative on the economic front where we don't yet know potentially what some of the preventative measures are that businesses will or will not have to take that could potentially you know, put them in a position to create a little bit of a drag on the economy or you know, potentially even drive people into recession. So with that in mind, and then with the backdrop of another statement you said, which was you think bearish sentiment and positioning amongst institutional investors in the market at large is pretty negative here. So how does this all kind of come together over the course of the coming, you know, month or two or maybe even the rest of the year, knowing that, you know, everyone's super negative, the data might be more negative coming forward, can sentiment get more negative, can markets go lower, or do you think they need to probably start finding a bottom because there just aren't enough sellers left? Yeah, I no, you're that's a, that's a great point and I guess I maybe need to kind of clarify a little bit when sentiment is negative position is negative but that's among the most active members of the community right that's among when we're looking at you're looking at levered accounts you're looking at cftc data you're looking at some of the some of the survey data some of the options positioning data these are the most active participants in the market but as we know the, the trend over the last 10 years has been towards passive away from active right and so now if we look at the assets under management um in, in the us it's, it's about 50 50 passive versus active so have those passive participants gotten as negative? And I might suggest that perhaps that's not the case. And so, and, and I think that that's a, a really critical thing to watch. And I think that inflation, as we've been talking about, plays a very critical role in that. And, and let me tell you why that might be, is because if we think of the way uh, of some of these more systematic or passive portfolios are built, and I would just use two of them, one of them from the institutional standpoint, looking at risk parity portfolios, which has been a, a very popular way to construct portfolios for real money, for pensions, endowments, et cetera, or if we look at the traditional 60-40 portfolio that is often used in, in retail um, accounts or for, with financial advisors, um, but is also uh, some version of that in, in target date funds that people use in their 401ks, these are largely predicated on the, the idea that, some, you know, being overly simplistic though, um, that stocks and bonds are negatively correlated. I understand that risk parity might use more than more asset classes than just stocks and bonds, and that target date funds might as well. But largely, they're predicated on the idea that stocks and bonds are negatively correlated. And in an era of declining interest rates and declining inflation that we've seen for the last forty years, that's absolutely been the case. However. In an era of inflation, and especially if inflation stays sticky, stocks and bonds are positively correlated. And that's what we've seen this year, right? 2022 has been the year of stocks and bonds being positively correlated and, and both moving uh, lower at a fairly rapid pace. Um, so what does that mean for the portfolio construction for institutions who are you know, looking at risk parity portfolios where they're... You know, you know, the, the the decision is how much equities versus how much bonds. And, you know, when I want to roll out of equities, I move into bonds, et cetera, versus in or 60-40 portfolios. And 60-40 portfolios are off to the worst nine-month start since the Great Depression. So have we seen these pension funds or these retail accounts um, get bearish yet? Probably not, right? Why? Because, you know, the certainly retail accounts, especially if you're looking at a 401k, target date funds, et cetera, they're looking, maybe looking at their state center, 
statements on a quarterly basis, maybe a half yearly basis, maybe even an only an annual basis. So have we seen those changes in you know where those 401ks are moving to cash yet? I would say no, we haven't. Pension funds and, and who are invested in risk parity, um, typically they're, they're, it's a slower moving account, right? Just because we had a bad six months of performance, they're not gonna pull their money out of those those types of portfolios. They might not even after bad nine months of perform, performance. However, when you go into the annual review, if you're a hedge fund running those type of portfolios, you're gonna have that discussion with those investors about what's, what does it look like kind of going forward. And if inflation looks to be sticky, and we know that that means that stocks and bonds could be positively correlated. And I would add to not only are they positively correlated, but the volatility of bonds is about the same as the volatility of stocks. And so it's not a, a low volatility asset. I think all we've probably seen in these risk parity portfolios is a deleveraging because of the higher volatility. I think there's, there is another shoe to drop from both institutions and retail based on their year on statements and based on this portfolio construction. I'm not predicting that it will happen, but I'm just suggesting that that is something that could happen and something that we need to be uh, mindful of and, and to kind of watch for. And so, Rich, you know, a lot of what we spoke about today are things that um, I was able to read in advance based on your newsletter. Maybe you could walk in through a little bit about the newsletter and what you try to accomplish. Well, what I'm trying to accomplish, broadly speaking, is I'm trying to demystify financial markets, right? I spent 30 years in the financial markets, and I understand uh, a lot of the techniques that we use, a lot of the jargon that we use, a lot of the, the press that comes out from the financial markets, intentionally or unintentionally, really kind of gets people's eyes to gloss over. And that's even people who have studied business in, in school, et cetera, but certainly people who have money to invest on their own that that just are smart people, but they're maybe not, don't have that, that finance education or the finance experience. So my goal is to try to break down some of these concepts to get so that people can understand them so they can make some decisions on their own portfolio. And so my, my, my blog that I call Stay Vigilant, which is on Substack, um, I put out on a weekly basis and every week I'm going through um, a number of the different issues that I think are important for investors to understand. I try to break it down into kind of three component pieces. Sometimes I'll look only at one component on a week and sometimes it's, it's all the components. But the way I think about the world is a way that I thought about the world when I did global macro. It's also a way I thought about the world when I was doing equity long short. And that's breaking it down to what I call fundamentals, um, behavioral components, and then catalysts. The fundamentals, if we're thinking about it broadly at a, at a market level, are the fundamentals of the economy, what's driving the economy. That includes um, economic trends of growth and inflation. It includes central bank policy. Uh, it includes you know other other aspects that are going to affect the, the the potential growth in the economy. Um, and and that ultimately we know that if if we're looking, for instance, at the stock market, that the economy drives earnings and earnings drive stocks. And so that's the fundamental trend um, that you want to think about. And so when that's positive. That's a tailwind for riskier assets like stock markets. When that's negative, that's a headwind. And I would say that for almost for all of this year, um, this this has been the trending lower. Growth has been trending lower. Inflation's been trending higher. And this is a headwind for taking risk in the market. The second component is what I call behavioral, or it's supply and demand, um, and that's looking across all the different asset classes, um, and this comes from my days doing global macro, um, where different asset classes respond at different times and we can get information from these different asset classes to understand, really try to get a gauge of where the, the fastest moving investors, where their heads are in terms of the um, sentiment and the risk that they're taking and how they're not just doing that 
um, and, and not really just relying on survey data, but relying on what they're actually doing. And so I look a lot at the options market. I do certainly look at some um, technical analysis, which I think helps me with that from a behavioral standpoint and understanding where people are underwater or not, looking um, at the at flow of funds data, looking at, at IPO data, SPAC data, mergers and acquisitions, et cetera, and try to get a sense of of whether there's panic or euphoria, whether there's fear or greed, um, and where the flow of funds is. Because what I learned certainly when I was trading stocks is that you could have a stock with good fundamentals, but if everyone was selling it, it's not going to go up anytime soon. So you want to you want to be be mindful of where that supply and demand is. And then the last component is what I call catalyst, because you know when you see the supply and demand uh, perhaps moving. You, uh, in one direction where people are on one side of the, the boat, what's going to get them to change their mind, right? What is going to, what is it going to be that kind of gets people to switch their flow of funds, et cetera. And so for that, I really look at three, three pieces within the catalyst and that's earnings as we've talked about it's economic data and it's geopolitics. Geopolitics is almost always a negative at best. It's a non-negative. Um, I think right now, I think it's fair to say that it's probably a negative. If I look at economic data from a catalyst standpoint, Good economic data just means that the Fed's in play. Bad economic data means the Fed's gone too far. So I don't see where economic data can be a catalyst to get things to change. But I think earnings can be a catalyst to get things to potentially change if they're not as bad as feared. If we see that companies are able to manage through um, you know, this, this inflation and growth period. Um, that's not my base case. That's not what I'm expecting. But you know, you have to to avoid cognitive dissonance. You have to understand where something could come out that would change one's mind, and and I think that would potentially be a, a place that you know would change people's minds. And so, I that's what I look through. That's why I'm focused a little bit on sentiment. I'm focusing on the trend, which is negative. I'm focusing on the sentiment, which is negative, and then I'm focused on the catalyst and what could happen. And I think the biggest thing in Q4 is going to be um, the the earnings as we look across the market. Fantastic. And so, Richard, I just want to thank you again uh, for taking the time uh, to speak with us. Uh, Again, I'm very excited to look forward to uh, how the markets evolve here and hopefully have you on again next month to catch up. And of course, everyone else, thank you so much uh, for listening to the show. Remember to visit YieldTreat.com to learn more about our offerings. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube channel so you never miss a show. Thank you and see you next week. Thanks, Peter. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. 